Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Shane Claiborne, a leading figure in the new monasticism movement. I would consider it a Christian movement, and I have learned a lot from the Protestant denominations, and I've learned a lot from the Catholic and Orthodox and other streams. So I, I like to think we're trying to go for that unity that Jesus prayed for in John, you know, that we would be one as God is one. Patrick Herman talks with Shane Claiborne next. Founding member of the nonprofit organization, The Simple Way in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Shane Claiborne is also a social activist advocating for nonviolence and service to the poor. Shane, welcome to his people. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me, brother. Well, start us out with monasticism. Describe the, <laughs> describe the mo- movement for us. We're going deep quick, I guess, on this. <laughs> well, uh, I always, you know, I didn't grow up Catholic. I didn't grow up even knowing the word monastic, probably. And even now, you know, half my neighbors, you'd be like, I know you're a little nasty, but I don't, you know, I, I think it's a, it's helpful, though, when you look at church history, um, to see that there's these movements of folks that hold together Christian belief and Christian practice. Uh, so like some of the, the, you know, great thinkers of the church talk about orthodoxy, like where we get, you know, right doctrine, right thinking and orthopraxis, right practice. Like what does it look like, you know, to live out the gospel? Yeah. Uh, and so some of my inspiration have been folks uh, that are, you know, part of monastic orders like Mother Teresa, who was, you know, uh, a a great inspiration for me. Uh, I grew up in the evangelical Methodist and then got into the charismatic movement. But then I really was trying to figure out what does this look like? You know, I know I'm a believer, but what does it look like to be a follower? What does it look like to live out the Sermon on the Mount, to sell what you have and give it to the poor? And so a lot of those monastic orders have had real concrete vows that they make, you know, of um, a life of simplicity and and chastity, you know, and uh, service to the poor and those sort of things. So um, about 10 years into our community, we felt a lot of inspiration from those monastic movements. And we identified 12 marks of discipleship, you know, that uh, are a part of our lifestyle Christianity. And so those have to do with caring for the earth and sharing possessions and peacemaking and uh, racial justice and uh, hospitality to the stranger. So they're all like there in the gospel. It was just helpful to kind of articulate some of them and put put some teeth on things, you know? Would you consider it a, a Catholic movement or no? I would just consider it a Christian movement. And I have learned a lot from the Protestant uh, denominations, and I've learned a lot from the Catholic and Orthodox and other streams. So I I like to think we're trying to go for that unity that Jesus prayed for in John, you know, that we would be one as God is one. And there's 30,000 denominations. (laughs) So we're trying to kind of transcend them a little bit and pull the best out of them and spit out the bones where we need to. But uh, that's, and we've always had folks that identify as Catholic and Protestant that are a part of the community here in Philadelphia. All right. So a little bit of a bridge between, between the two. You know, I've always yeah, hated, the, yeah. I've always hated the word Protestant as if I'm protesting me, protesting some group that always bugged me. Re- Reform. That's, that's okay. That's a good word, but Protestant, I've never liked that word. Yeah, it's interesting. So I I mean, for me, you know, I, I grew up 
Methodists and got involved in the charismatic movement, as I said, and then I started, uh, I was mentored by several Catholic folks. Still, uh, there are a lot of folks that um, are part of the Catholic tradition that uh, are really influential friends of mine, you know, Richard Rohr, and before he passed away, um, Henry Nowen, you know, and others that have been really instrumental in shaping me. And I had the chance, you know, to work with Mother Teresa when she was still alive. So, you know, that work in India uh, was really instrumental as we formed our community here in North Philadelphia. Um, so that, and we started in an abandoned Catholic church. So where homeless families were living. So all that, you know, and then we read about St. Francis of Assisi and we're like, wow, this was a youth movement that started in an abandoned church and literally heard God's spirit say, repair the church, which is in ruins. And in some ways that same uh, longing is what we want to see as a church restored and brought back to life, a church with its feet on the ground and in real neighborhoods and not just kind of confining itself to buildings. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, man. Let's talk about the movement and how it's, it's really starting to spread and, and, and how actually how it was spreading. Is it, is it through literature? Is it through uh, churches that are being put together there in Philadelphia and elsewhere? Or tell us what's, what's going on with the movement itself. Well, I think there's a lot of folks that, like me, grew up in the church and uh, became a little disenchanted with some of the contradictions or hypocrisies that we saw, not just in others, but in myself. You know, I I grew up um, uh, uh, seeing some of those things that don't look a lot like Jesus, <laughs> that, that had come to sort of distinguish some versions of our faith. And so... Um, what happened was uh, one of my friends was being interviewed by a DJ, a, ra you know, a radio DJ down in Nashville, and the guy didn't seem to have a whole lot to do with Christianity or spirituality, but he said, I I've been reading the Bible, and there's parts of it that I love, and parts of it, if I'm honest, I find a little confusing, even troubling at times, and he said, but I've always liked the stuff in red. Uh, and he was talking about the, you know, the gospels that had the words of Jesus highlighted in red. And he said, you guys should call yourselves red letter Christians. So, you know, a few years ago, that language kind of took off and, um, and, and, you know, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi was asked about Christianity and he said, uh, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, whether it's monasticism or red letter Christians, I think what, what, what it amounts to is there's a lot of people that want a Christianity that looks more like Jesus again. And a lot of our, our Christianity has sometimes become known more for what it's against than what it's for, less about love, more about legalism. Sometimes it's uh, really entrenched in the partisan politics of our culture. So, you know, we wrote a book called Jesus for President that was kind of inviting this idea of like, if Jesus is Lord of everything, what does that really look like? You know, and what does it look like when it comes to some of these big issues like welcoming immigrants or refugees. Like I, I believe when we welcome the stranger, we welcome Jesus, you know? And so like, let's talk about those things, not just in a partisan way, but in a way that's fueled by love, loving our neighbor as ourselves. You reminded me of something just now. I was driving through Tennessee about 2021 and I saw a bunch of signs that said, Jesus for president. You know, it was during the <laughs> elections. Was that from your campaign or your group? Well, I, I, I can neither confirm nor deny uh, the banners, but I, you know, every time the early Christians were saying Jesus is Lord, yeah. they were saying Caesar is not. 
And it was about loyalty. It was about allegiance. It was also about hope, you know, where our hope lies. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I think that's so important right now to say our hope is not in the donkey of the Democrats or the elephant of the GOP. Our, our hope is in Christ alone, you know, and, and to really allow that to be the framework through which we're thinking about these things. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, when I was in high school, I was organizing the CU at the poll campaigns, you know, to uh, bring prayer back into schools. I've done all sorts of like different ways of thinking about how we engage, you know, as Christians in the world, but not of the world. So I've been working that out for 20 years, man. Yeah. <laughs> Still figuring it out. Well, monasticism, just the word, you know, taken from monks or the the order of monks and how they, they go about their traditional beliefs. But I, I can see you talk with your hands, and I can see your wedding ring uh, on your your hand. And, and so you're married. You're not you're not living as a monk per se. Uh, so how long have you been married? Yeah, I guess everybody can't see my ring, but it's uh, it's uh, interesting. I had a friend that made it, and it's a ring just like the one that Mother Teresa wore, and oh, many of nice. the sisters wear. So this was my dad died when I was nine years old, Patrick, and so I had his wedding band. And my wife and I melted it down, uh, had our friend do it and made this ring um, that's a prayer ring. And and it's a reminder, too, that, yes, I am married and madly in love with my wife, Katie Jo, who's from North Carolina and uh, but been in Philly with me for, you know, about 15 years. And we've been married for 12 now. Um, but it's also a reminder that that we are committed to Jesus, you know, that this is is, is a loyalty that as is at the heart of our faith. And one of the things that struck me when I was with Mother Teresa in India is uh, she said um, someone asked her if she was married, which is an interesting question for a nun, you know, yeah, and, um, right. she, had, she had the best response. She goes, well, I am in love. And sometimes my spouse can be so demanding. <laughs> she's talking about Jesus, right? right. So this idea that Jesus is our lover, Jesus is the center of our life, and we can build our life around that as a married couple. I mean, that's what we've been after. So when I when I met, uh, kind of first connected with Katie, I was being mentored by a Catholic monk. So uh, that was an awkward time to to meet your future wife. But we wrote <laughs> letters for a year and didn't see each other. We sort of had this courtship or this writing relationship. And then, you know, the question I was asking is, is what my my friend said to me is, do you shine brighter together than on your own? Do you shine brighter for Jesus in union together? Or um, And so, I, you know, this is the great thing for me is like having been mentored by folks who have taken a lifelong vow of celibacy, um, I've learned that our deepest longing is not for sex, but for love. And you can have a whole lot of sex and not experience love. And you can go your whole life without you know, having sex and experience love really deeply. So I think that's the real question is, you know, we're, we're all made in the image of a God who reflects community and love and unity, this kind of plurality of oneness. So what does it look like to love and be loved? And I think there's lots of ways that we can experience that, that um, uh, kind of this idea that we're not meant to be alone. And even Jesus is modeling of community and sending the disciples out in pairs and uh, you know, all of that, like, it's a story of being made for community and for love. Uh, and so I, I am grateful that, you know, for 12 years now, I've, I've experienced that in the context of marriage. Um, but I think in some ways in the church, we put this pressure on people to get married. And I can remember hearing a children's sermon where the pastor literally held up a picture of, you know, the 
idyllic family with a husband and wife and two kids and prayed that every kid would find the the one that God had for them. And I'm like, ah, you know, I read Matthew when Jesus talks about being single and going, if you could, you know, like this is, this is not, I don't think this is, this is quite right. You know, and you don't look at mother Teresa and go, if only she'd met her husband, imagine what she could have done in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, So, yeah, I think, you know, we put too much pressure on people to think that, they have to be married. Um, and, you know, so I, I think we are called to community. We're called to love and uh, marriage and, you know, biological family can be one manifestation of that. Uh, and Katie and I don't have kids, but we got a lot of kids in our life. We just get to send them home when we're done with them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about that because, you, you you know, your service to the poor, the things that you've learned from all these different religions, good or bad, right? You have all these. You, I think in in an article I read about you, you, you called yourself a mutt theologian, right? Spiritual mutt. Spiritual mutt. Uh, And so you're taking all these different aspects and saying, all right, how can this work better for the kingdom of God? And I I love that aspect. Tell me what, how you were transformed by working with Mother Teresa. What did you do when you were working with her? Well, uh, the the wild thing was I was only like 19 years old or something, you know, and that's the great thing about being young is that, you know, nothing's impossible. We 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 decided. Um, I mean, the question I was really asking with some of my college friends was, "What does it really look like to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously? Sell what you have and give it to the poor. You know, love your enemies. The Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the the poor, the meek, the merciful. And who's who's doing that? You know. Yeah. And we read about all these great saints, but Mother Teresa was still alive, so we wrote her a letter and got a little impatient. So we called and she picked up the telephone and, um, and we were calling from a pay phone, you know, so it was real expensive. And, uh, <laughs> and we just, uh, asked her if we could come work with her for the summer. And she said, come on out. Wow. And, and, and we did. And I worked in uh, a few different places, but every morning I worked in one of the orphanages that mother Teresa started. And, um, some of these kids were abandoned in train stations. Some of them were eight years old, 10 years old, living on the streets. And, and she really brought them in. And, um, and that's where she got the nickname mother. Cause she was raising, she was like the, the old fairy tale, the mother in the shoe, the woman in the shoe that had so many kids, she didn't know what to do, you know? And, um, but then in the afternoon, I worked in the home for the dying, which was mother Teresa's first home. And every day we would go into the streets and we would bring people in who were dying, uh, alone. And, uh, our goal was for someone to die with someone holding their hand and smiling at them, laughing with them, praying with them, sharing food with them. Um, and so sometimes we were the last, you know, eyes that someone was looking into as they passed away. And we were um, whispering God's love in every way that we knew. And when you go into the morgue in the home, Patrick, uh, home for the dying, it says on the wall, uh, I'm on my way to heaven. And you look on the other side and it says, thanks for helping me get here. Mm. And my buddy said, it's kind of like we're travel agents, you know, (laughs) helping people get from this world to the next. So it was very uh, holy work. Um, And I I lived in a village of folks who had leprosy uh, at about, you know, several hundred families there. I mean, there was just one experience after another that was shaping and forming me. And it also like one of the things, you know, when you say, what did you learn? One of the, the things was like, that there's a deeper spirituality than just going to church on Sunday morning. And yeah. I mean, this was such is like ingrained in everything that we do. We'd wake up at five o'clock in the morning. 
which is not my favorite hour, but we would start with prayer. And then we would go and do this, what could be really emotionally and spiritually exhausting work. Um, and then we'd come back for prayer. We'd go back to work. We'd come back for prayer. And it was this integrated life. Um, and, you know, when we think about monasticism, that's really what a lot of those those communities look like. And uh, I can remember, you know, every morning we would take communion. And we were talking to one of the nuns about that. And she, she said, we said, why do you do it every morning? And she said, well, you've heard the saying, we are what we eat. <laughs> and she's like, that's it. You know, literally, we're praying that we would say with Paul, the life I live, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. You know, that this would really be in the prayers that we prayed were much deeper than a lot of the, you know, just kind of prayer requests we would bring to God and youth group. And and so, you know, I can remember one of the prayers that I still pray to this day. I learned in India and Mother Teresa prayed it every morning. She says, may every person I come in contact with feel your presence in my soul, Jesus. And then it says, let me leave off your fragrance everywhere I go, Jesus. Mm. So this idea that we're leaving off the fragrance of Jesus, you know, in the world is a is a beautiful thing. So I mean, there's so much more to be said, man. Yeah. But that it was it was massive for me. Yeah, it was incredible. I spent ten weeks in India, came back. We started our community, and I went back uh, one other time. I'd love to go back again sometime. Yeah. Well, and you know, you have a couple of books, uh, Executing Grace and Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person. Let's talk a little bit about your service to the poor. Uh, and even your the advocating that you're doing for nonviolence. Let's talk a little bit about some of those issues. Is that okay? Oh yeah, man, absolutely. Let's start with the issue of life. And you say it's more than just the whether we're pro or against abortion. Tell me what your your, your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So growing up in the Bible Belt in Tennessee, I grew up saying that I was pro life. And then as I stepped back, I began to see how narrowly we've defined what it means to be pro-life really to often to one issue of abortion and on many other issues of life we are not always the champions of life as christians sometimes it's not even on our, our radar sometimes we're even a part of the problem and that's what i saw especially on um when it comes to the death penalty and to gun violence we don't exactly have that consistent a value for the sacredness of life. And just to make it plain, you know, 95% of executions in America happen in the Bible Belt. Uh, the Bible Belt is the death belt. So where uh, Christians are most concentrated, where Christians are governors and legislators, is what, where the Bible Belt is continued, or, or where, where the death penalty has continued to kind of hang on. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I mean, for most of my, for much of my life, I was uh, a supporter of the death penalty. In fact, I had the Bible verses that I thought really uh, justified it. And a couple of things happened. I began to take a closer look at Scripture, especially um, in light of Jesus. You know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you this: how he interrupted an execution of a woman in adultery and said, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. You know, Jesus saying, blessed are the merciful. Jesus saying, uh, I've not come for the healthy, but for the sick, you know, not for the righteous, but for the sinners. So what does that mean for us? And then I also started to get to know folks on death row. And Patrick, I'll tell you, like, um, I had an opportunity to go to many 
death rows around the country, but particularly in Tennessee to Riverbend, where Tennessee's death row is. And for 10 years, I've been getting to know the guys there. And some of them, I believe, are are innocent of the crimes that they were convicted of. Um, some of them actually have been able to prove they're innocent and are now freed. And you think like how broken this system is. But then there's others that I believe are, are I mean, actually, they're fully transparent about what they did. One man that I got to know really well, Don Johnson was his name, and he brutally killed his wife. And it made me sick at my stomach as I uh, learned about what he did. Uh, But over the years, I saw what Jesus did in his life and how he had tried to heal some of the wounds of that. He opened up a a relationship with his daughter who courageously also like got to know him again after 30 years of not talking to him, you know, and all this happened, like we're praying together, we're singing. And then his execution date came up and I was able to be with him the week of his execution. And he, he fasted from his final meal and gave uh, the the money that would be used for his last meal to uh, a homeless mission in Nashville. He, his last words before he was executed were, I want to ask forgiveness for the pain that I've, I've caused. And I want to extend forgiveness to the people that are getting ready to execute me. So it very much mirrored the, like, forgive them for not with it. For, but he also recognized his own sin, you know, and he died singing praises to God. I mean, he sang the, the song, uh, soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king. There's no more dying there. There's no more crying there, you know. Um, and yet, I think what happened for me is that the, the death penalty to me is not just a political or social issue. It's a really deeply spiritual one. And it raises the question, do we believe that anybody is beyond redemption? You know, don't we believe that God's grace gets the last word? And I mean, frankly, as a Christian, like a if I didn't believe that, I'd have a lot of problems with the Bible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, Moses killed a man. You know, uh, uh, David killed Uriah to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was a murderer. Uh, so the Bible would be li- a, a whole lot shorter without grace. <laughs> um, and and yet that's part of why it really troubled me that um, the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance if it weren't for Christians. Um, yeah. And if you know, if we if we decided. Let's create alternatives that leave room for mercy and grace and still hold out like justice that, you know, murder has consequences. No one's saying that it shouldn't, you know, but you just go when it comes to the death penalty, we end up mirroring the evil that we're hoping to heal the world of, you know. Yeah, these are exactly the right questions, you know, and these are questions that I've been asking that I raise in in the books like Executing Grace and, you know, that you use that word justice. And it's an interesting word because some of these words get thrown around and they have different meanings, you know, they get kind of misconstrued. And the biblical concept of justice shares the same root as righteousness, right? It's about setting right what was made wrong. It's about healing the wounds of sin, and violence. And so we think of justice sometimes as punishment, like what did they do wrong and what punishment did they deserve? And biblical justice is actually pretty different. It's saying what what harm was done and what, what, what will heal that harm. And it leaves out room that maybe even someone that has been a perpetrator of violence can be a part of healing that. And we've seen versions of that really Christian-based, like biblically-based justice happened in all over the world. I think of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened uh, in Rwanda after the Rwandan genocide, um, Desmond Tutu and others that were at the center of some of those commissions. 
And it's, it's amazing to see what justice can look like when we have a different framework for asking about that, you know, and I, I mean, one of the examples I give in, in our, uh, in the book, Executing Grace is a guy that had a pattern of drinking and driving, and he ended up taking someone's life uh, as a drunk driver. And uh, he was definitely going to be incarcerated for probably the rest of his life. But then the victim's family, the family of this teenager that was killed, they said, maybe we can allow him to like use what he did as a way of trying to prevent further harm. So they began speaking together and doing events together. Hmm. And you think of how, you know, how moving it is to hear the parents of a child who was taken by a drunk driver. But then right after that, to hear from the man who did that, who was responsible for that. And it has the potential both to, I think, cause people to rethink drinking and driving, but also it gives this man an opportunity for his worst act to not define the rest of his life. As my friend Brian Stevenson says, uh, we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And I think some versions of justice just kind of cause us to be uh, confined and defined by the worst thing that we've ever done. But Jesus, as a, I believe, the fulfillment of the law, right, came to say, you don't even need to mirror the evil. We don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong. Yeah. We don't need to kill to try to show that killing is wrong. As my mama said, uh, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. So that's what I think Jesus's like embodiment of justice looks like. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and a lot of this I've learned, like you said, from from um, victims' families, uh, friends like my, like Sharon Risher, whose mother and her entire family, they were killed by Dylan Roof and uh, Emmanuel AME Church. So this is uh, at their Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, Dylan, fueled by racism and hatred, came in and opened fire on them. And she obviously has done some deep soul work. She's an incredible hero of mine, Sharon Risher. And she said, I found that forgiveness is the only way forward. And she said, I didn't forgive Dylan Roof so he can sleep at night, but so I can sleep at night. So that yeah. hatred and resentment doesn't define me and doesn't hold me hostage to the hatred that he did. I end up becoming like him if I say he should be killed. And she said, she's so driven by her faith, right? She, she ends up going, you know, you got to believe that Jesus's love is bigger than Dylan Roof's hatred. You got to believe that, hold out hope that God's grace is bigger than Dylan Roof's sin. And that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be incarcerated, but it does mean that we shouldn't kill him, that we should leave room for his story uh, should God's grace get a hold of him. Well, Shane, I have so many more questions for you. We're running out of time, but I wanted to just kind of, you know, I was just thinking while you were talking, it's always, that's sort of the, the model that the Bible gives us is there's God's judgment and then it's followed by God's restoration of his people, typically. But leave us with some understanding of maybe how our listeners can find out more about the monasticism movement or the simple way or check you out online. Where would you send them on the Internet? Yeah, absolutely. So folks can I'm, I'm pretty active on the socials, Patrick, on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. It's just my name, Shane Claiborne. And uh, and we're always making space for new friends as a part of the Red Letter Christians movement. So folks can go to redletterchristians.org. And um, as we say, we, we're trying we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. And we're always looking for new friends. And, you know, I just we have a couple more minutes, but I was thinking of the, the tail end. You've probably read for yourself 
John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, they, yeah. They make their way to the celestial city, and the, the people that are there say, we have not gone into the city because God has work for us to do on this side before we walk into the gates type of thing. Mm. And I thought that's a little bit, you know, when I was reading what you're all about, I think that's a little bit about what you're about is saying, no, don't think about getting into, you're already, you got the ticket, you're into heaven, you're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now what's the Lord have for you on this side before you enter those gates? Can you leave us with some final thoughts on that? Absolutely, man. I mean, you know, the, I think it was my grandmother. I remember saying some Christians are so heavenly minded that we're not much earthly good, you know, that we end up. Um, using our faith just as a ticket into heaven. And don't get me wrong, I'm excited about heaven. I believe in the afterlife, but I also believe in life before death. And almost every time Jesus opens his mouth, he talks about the kingdom of God. And it's not just something we're to go up to when we die, but it's something we're to bring on earth as it is in heaven. And that means thinking, what, what does it look like for God's dream to come on earth? And I would say, God's dream is not for 120 people to die every day of gun violence. God's dream is not for Tennessee to have the electric chair to execute people. God's dream is for mercy to triumph over judgment, for the last to be first, for the mighty to be cast from their thrones and the lowly to be lifted up, for the peacemakers to be the children of God. Like, that's God's dream. Uh, so let's pursue it. And, uh, you know, let's not... I think people are done with a version of Christianity that's just promising people life after death while ignoring life before death. And I think we can care about both. We can have a faith that engages this world and a, a faith that is about life after death and saving souls too. Shane Claiborne, uh, author and founding member of the nonprofit organization, The Simple Way, and leading member of the new monastic movement. Thanks for being with us today on His People. Thank you, my brother. Let's do it again sometime. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Shane Claiborne of The Simple Way. You can learn more by going to redletterchristians.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at this same time for another edition of His People.